I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 5. And today's sermon has to do with assurance, how I can know that I'm saved. Something that I think most of us have a great, great interest in knowing. Beginning verse 10 of 1 John chapter 5. And by the way, save the, keep, keep your place there because I'm going to be using uh, this epistle as we move along in this sermon. The one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. And the witness is this, God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the life has, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. One of the birthrights that God has given us as Christians is assurance. And one of the greatest tools that the devil has in defeating us as Christians is doubt. Somebody said, if the devil can't get you to drink, he'll get you to doubt. A doubting Christian is a defeated Christian. And you can't witness if you have doubts about your salvation. I mean, how can you go out tell somebody how to be saved if you're not sure he saved you. And you can't pray if you have doubts about your salvation because as you begin to pray, you begin to wonder, well, you know, am I really a child of God? You know, I mean, how can I ask God to answer my prayer when I have never accepted Christ as my Savior? You can't worship so that doubt defeats every practice of the Christian life. And while it is absolutely essential that a person is born again, it is also important that a person knows that he is born again. Now I've had people, I've heard people say, well, if you have doubts about your salvation, it means you're never saved. Well, I don't believe that. I believe that, that there are periods in a Christian's life when, or a period when he has a doubt about his salvation. The very fact that John wrote this implies the possibility of a Christian doubting. For if it weren't possible or probable that a Christian would doubt his salvation, why would he write this epistle that gives assurance? I think there are many reasons why professing Christians doubt their salvation. Some doubt their salvation because they don't have any. They've never been saved in the first place and really they're, they're not doubting something, they've just never had anything. Some people doubt their salvation because of some persistent sin, some habit in their life and they rationalize like this. Well, now if I really were a Christian, I wouldn't continue in, you know, to commit this sin. And some people doubt, most people doubt their salvation because they're ignorant of what the Bible says about salvation. 
But the Bible does say that it is possible for a person to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has eternal life. And that very term is what we're ignorant about. For what does it mean to you to have eternal life? If I were to stand at the back of the auditorium this morning and ask you as you you left this morning, what do you think it means to have eternal life? 99 out of 100 of you would say, well, it means that you live forever. Well, it means that, but that's not the primary meaning. The word eternal here is an adjective, and it can only be ascribed to God. We talk about eternal mountains, but there are no such thing because there was a time when the mountains weren't there. We talk about eternal thoughts, but they're not eternal thoughts. There was a time when there were neither thoughts nor anybody to think them. The word eternal is ascribed only to God, and what he's talking about is God's kind of life, God's life. Now Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, that that we are partakers of the divine nature. What he means is that God gives us his life and that life is eternal. It's not just quantity, it's quality. Now, if I were to tell certain people, you know, that you're gonna live forever, they wouldn't consider that good news. Uh, Some people don't wanna live forever under certain conditions. And, and, And that's why we have 600 people commit suicide in this country every day. It's more than just quantity of days, it's quality. It means eternal life means that God gives you his life. Well, how can you know that you have eternal life? Well, here's the principle, I want you to get this down. God-like life results in God-like living. Now, let me see if I can explain that just a little bit more clearly. If a person has received the divine nature, God-like life, God's life, it will be expressed in God-like living. And that's what John is dealing with in this little epistle. Now it seems to me that when I read the epistle of 1 John, I can see that John puts God-likeness into three categories. He puts God-likeness in righteousness, and in love and in faithfulness or faith. So that what John is saying in this epistle is, this is what God is like. He is righteous, he is love, and he is faithful. faithful. So that God-likeness is this. It can be put into these categories, behavior, brotherhood, and belief. And what John is saying is this. If you really want to know if you've been saved or not, let's put it to the test of behavior and brotherhood and belief. Let's put it under a microscope and let's test it and see. Because all the way through the book of John, there are these people who are giving testimony to this, giving testimony to their faith and making profession of their faith. And he said, okay, well, let's just put that profession under the microscope and see if it passed the test. It's what Jesus was always doing. They'd come running up to Jesus. Guy came running up to Jesus and said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus gave him three straight cannots. It's it's interesting that Jesus ran off more people than he won. And they always started out with a crowd and ended up with just a few. And Jesus lost the most the greatest prospect he ever had. He was a rich young ruler. He came running up to Jesus. He had money and he had manners, he had morals. 
Jesus said, well, you keep the commandments. He said, I've already kept the commandments. He said, all right, one thing you lack. This is how you can have eternal life. Go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. You ask, well, does that mean that in order to be a Christian, you have to give up everything you have and give it to the poor? No, it doesn't mean that. I mean, if you go to the doctor, he doesn't prescribe the same prescription for everybody, does he? He diagnoses the need and then he makes the prescription on the basis of the diagnosis. What Jesus was doing was diagnosing this young man's need. He knew, he knew that, that money was his God and in order for him to follow him, he had to give up that money. And he prescribed on the basis of the diagnosis. And what he was doing was this, he was letting us see that he wants nobody to follow him who is not sold out to him. And he, knows, he wants us to know that following Jesus is more than just profession. And so John comes and he says, okay, you profess this faith, you say that you've been saved, all right, let's put it to the test. And there are three tests. Three microscopes he puts that profession under. I want you to look at them with me. First is the mic microscope of behavior. Now with your New Testament, I want you to turn to chapter two, and we're gonna read verses three through six. Verse three begins like this. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Let me, let me see if I can put that like, this is how we know him. If we keep his commandments, we know that we know him. The one who says, and here's this guy giving his testimony, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know we're in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Now John is saying, what John is saying is this, that if you have been saved, it will make a difference in the way you live. Now there was a heresy in John's days called Gnosticism. And this heresy taught that all that mattered was that you were orthodox in your belief. If you were orthodox and fundamental, if you believed the right things, behavior didn't matter. That, that heresy still with us. I know some Baptists this morning who believe that the only thing that really matters is that you're fundamental and orthodox. Doesn't matter what you, how your life is, as long as you believe the right thing. What John is saying is this, that if there is not a difference in the way you live, then your profession is a lie. Boom. W.T. Connor said, used to say that, that John argues like a woman. Now you know how a woman argues, don't you? They're irrational. <laughs> now, now, men argue rationally, and I'm not trying to be chauvinistic, but, but it's just the truth, you know, women. Here's how a man argues. He's reasonable and he's logical. And you know, I hear a man saying amen. Oh, here, uh, he's reasonable and logical and makes sense and rational. And, and this way he argues, he puts all this, he says this plus this plus this, and this is, this is results in this, and that's the proof that this and this and this is true. It's the way Paul argued. 
John Bassanio said he had a real high-powered attorney in his church that came up to him one day. He said, I'm convinced after reading through the book of Romans that the apostle Paul could have argued to the Supreme Court. In the Supreme Court, a fantastic debater. He put everything in order. He said, this and this and this gives evidence and proof of this. Now, a woman argues irrationally. She says, now this such and such is true. You say, well, how do you know? Well, I just know. Well, well, show me some proof. I don't have any proof. I just know it's true. And you say, well, why? How do you know that? I don't know how I know it. I just know it. I just, I just got this gut feeling. And most of the time, they're right. You ever notice that? Now, don't ever argue with a woman because most of the time, she's right. They just kind of have the ability to hone in on the truth. I mean, it not, may not be rational or it, it may not be logical, but it's just the truth. And they have this uncanny ability to hone in on the truth. Now, John argues like a woman. He just hones in on the truth. And this is what he says. If you don't keep the commandments of God, your profession is a lie. Sounds kind of like the, uh, the shouting committees that we used to have in churches a long time ago. You, you know about those, don't you? Some of you old enough remember the shouting committee, perhaps. Way back in the stone ages, you know, when I was born, people used to shout in church. They'd hallelujah, praise the Lord, and they'd have a revival meetings, you know, and people would shout, and they had committees there, take their name down. They got all the shouters' names down. The next day, they went through the town and see if they paid their bills, you know, and see if they, see if this guy ran around on his, he'd check out, you know, and check out the shouters and the next, if everything you know, measured up, well, they'd go back the next night and say, okay, you can shout, you know, it's all right. <laughs> Shouting committee, they checked them out and everything checked out so they could shout. I wonder how many of us would like to have a shouting committee. Probably couldn't find enough people to form the committee, but how would we like to have a shouting committee? Now, now Jesus sat with his disciples one night and he struggled, they were struggling with death, his death and their life without him. And this is what he said. He said, I'm going away, I'm going to the Father. Oh, Philip held up his hand, he said, Lord, just show us the Father and it'll be enough. And Jesus looked at Philip and said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Everything you can and need to know about God, you see in me. Now, some of us are telling some lies about Jesus. We represent him. We have his name. We're his body. This is not the way Jesus lived. This is not the attitude and the, and the heart that Jesus had. It ought to be that somebody say, well, what did Jesus look like? They ought to be able to point to you and to me and say, look, just like that Christian right there. Now, what does it mean to keep his commandments? Does that mean you have to be sinlessly perfect? Does that mean that, that if you broke any of the commandments, you know, one commandment that, 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 that you, you, you're disqualified? No, the word keep there means to keep vigil upon. I want to say something. Listen to me very carefully. If you are just as happy outside the will of God as you are inside the will of God, you got some reason to doubt your salvation. Now what he's talking about is not the absence of sin. He's talking about an attitude towards sin. He's talking about aligning your life up on the basis of the stars, on the basis of the commandment of God. And what he says, plain and simple, just 
right down next to the cotton is this, that if you can live outside the will of God and not feel conviction about that, you have every reason in the world to doubt your salvation. That's the test of behavior. Second, is the test of brotherhood, the test of love. Now I don't have time to spend a lot of time on this because I want to get to the zinger, which is the last one, but I'm going to mention this. So I want you to turn to chapter three, look at verse 14 and 15, verses 14 and 15. We know that we have passed from out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love, that is the brethren, abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now turn over to the fourth chapter, verse 20. If someone says, here's this guy giving his testimony, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. Now you need to understand who, quote, the brother is here. It's not talking about your neighbor or your physical brother. He's talking about the, the people in the family of God. He's talking about your spiritual brother. He's talking about church folks, loving church folks. I know it's not possible to always feel good about church folks. You don't always feel good about me, and I may not. <clears throat> Uh, it, we're not talking about, you know, always, you know, just liking everybody. You've heard that little jingle, to live in love with the saints above, brother, that'll be glory, but to live below with some of the saints I know, well, that's another story. Well, I'm talking about, it's not, this is another story. Now, but what he's saying is, he's talking about association. He's talking about loving the folks in the family of God. Now, now notice what he's, what, what's happening here. I want to come at it. There's so much to talk about here, but I just have time to mention one aspect of it. I worry about a person who would just as soon or a little bit rather be with the world's crowd as to be with God's crowd. I have a little, I worry about that. I have a worry, I think it, it worries me when I run into folks who like to be with the world's crowd a little bit more or just as much as to be with God's crowd. Now you say to me, well, does that mean if you don't go to church, you know, that you can't be saved? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that if you love the company of the world with the same kind of love you have for God's people, maybe a little bit more, there's something wrong. Now, wouldn't it, wouldn't it seem, doesn't it seem this way that, that if you know somebody that says, well, I, I belong to a certain family, you know, they're my family, and they have no desire to associate with that family? Well, rather they love to be with a family that is diametrically opposed to their family and hostile toward it, wouldn't you say there's something wrong with that guy? That's what John is saying. Now, you need to understand the language of the word hate. What does that mean? Get this, please. When he says you hate, if you hate your brother, he means if you cherish ill will toward your brother, underline the word cherish. If you just cherish an ill will towards somebody. I mean, you like it, you know, that you feel that way. Now, there's sometimes we have ill feelings and ill will towards somebody, but it bothers us and we don't want to feel that way. It worries us. 
it eats away at us. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you cherish that ill will and you refuse to see anything good about that person and all your thoughts about them are bad and you just kind of delight, you feed on that. John says, God says you can't say you love me and feel that way. It's a test of love. Coming to the last. It's the acid test. It's the test of belief. Now go back to the text. We'll go to verse 10. And the one who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his Son. Now let me say parenthetically, I think sometimes this doubting is a domino kind of a thing. Has a domino. You ever notice that? I know some evangelists that come into churches and get everybody rebaptized. I mean the whole church. I know a church where an evangelist, if I called his name, you'd know his name immediately. Went into this church and everybody in the church, every deacon, pastor, song leader, some preachers, some song leader, need, well, no, it's, it got, everybody got rebaptized. Everybody thought they hadn't been saved. I don't, I, don't, I'm not what I'm, I don't want that to happen. I wouldn't have an evangelist did that in the first place. Because there's a domino effect. For example, I'm, I'm seeing this guy and he's just, he's the best church member we got. I mean, he's just faithful and he serves. He has, he's on the board, all that kind of stuff. And he comes forward some Sunday morning and he says, hey, I've never really been saved. I need to get saved. I look at that and I say, hey, if that kind of guy wasn't saved, then I must not be. See? Now, I know that I'm going to be misunderstood. I said that in early service. I know that I'm going to be misunderstood from here on down, but I'm going to take a chance because it needs to be said. Sometimes we put too much emphasis on the so-called experience. I had a lady come to me when I was a pastor in, in uh, Tulia, Texas. If you want to write her, you can call her. I'll give you her phone number. You can ask this. Not this is a true story. Her name was Cleta Andrus. She came to me one afternoon. I've been a pastor there about three or four months. She said, "Brother Gerald," she said, I, "I don't think I'm a Christian. I need I need to get I need to be really saved." And I said, "Well, you know, let's talk about it. It's great. Let's talk about it." She said, "Well, I've been baptized five times. I've been baptized five times." And I said, "Well, now I'm going to tell you right up front. I'm, I'm not going to baptize you again." Well, let's just talk about what's going on here. And she said, well, she said, I said, when were you saved? When did you go forward and make a profession of faith in the initial experience? She said, well, I was 38 years old. And an evangelist came to town and said everybody was going forward and said there was a whole line of people there waiting for the pastor and the deacons to counsel with them. And he just stepped up to me, took my hand. I said, I never will forget it. And she, he said, do you want to be saved? And I said, yeah, I've come to be saved. And she, he said, he prayed for me right there, held my hand and prayed for me. And when I lifted my head, he said, did you say a certain thing? And he, she, she told me what he, what he said. Did you say and, and it, it, it was two or three things? And she said, you know, Brother Gerald, I, I said, yes, I said that. I prayed that. But she said, I didn't pray that. She said, I lied. She said, I couldn't have been saved because I lied. And I said, now, you, you, let, me, let me be sure that I understand what you're saying. You, you're saying that you did pray to be saved, but you didn't say what he told you. He asked you if you said. She said, that's right. And I said, well, forget about what you said back there. Now, here's where I'm only misunderstood, but I want to, I, I believe this deeply. 
The important thing is not the experience. That is, what you did or did not do in the attending, you know, words or whatever. That's what I'm talking about. Now, I do believe in a personal experience of salvation. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that it's not the experience that saves you. It's God that saves you. And, and, and so just forget about that experience. And I said, I want you to, I want you to turn to John 6.47. Now don't do that right now because I want you to listen to what it says. And I read John 6.47 to her and this is what it says. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus speaking, he who believes has eternal life. And I said, now, are you believing? And she said, yes, I'm believing. I'm believing in Jesus right now. I said, forget about what you said back there and down in the front, that, that evangelist. Or right, or right now, are you believing in Jesus? She said, yes, I am believing. I said, then what does that say? She said, well, it says I have eternal life. And I said this, and I believe this, that the presence of faith now the presence of trust, the presence of committal now is what gives us assurance, not what we said or didn't say. Are you with me? Do your head like this. Because, watch this, because faith, saving faith, is a continuing, enduring faith. Now, if you, and I said to Cletus, I said, Cleta, I said, if you are now believing and you have been believing, she was about 58 years old, I said, in the last 20 years, you have been believing, it's pretty good evidence of the initial experience. Because saving faith is enduring or a continuing faith. The fact that you have it now is pretty good proof that you had, that you had it to begin with. See what I'm saying? Now, I want to come at it from the downside. I go out and I knock on this door and it's, guy comes to the door and I tell him I'm pastor, come on in. His wife's sitting in there and she's got a can of beer in one hand, a cigarette in the other. She's plopped up there watching television. She said, oh, you're a Baptist preacher. She said, well, I'm a Christian. I'm a Baptist. And I said, oh, really? Yes. I'm. I said, well, tell me about it. She said, well, 15 years ago, 15 years ago, I had, I, I went forward. I had this experience. No, now, now, don't misunderstand not belittling anybody's experience. But it just seemed a little strange to me that there hadn't been one ounce of evidence in the 15 years from the time of the initial experience till now. Seems a little strange. Not one ounce of evidence. Because if there is enduring, if there is saving faith, it is enduring and continuing faith. Now, I want to read a verse of scripture that's going to distress some of you. I'm going to put some of you in, 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 in stress. I'm just going to read it. You can put down the, and note where it comes from. You can read it when you get home. This is what it says. This is Colossians chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's what we all were before we were saved. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before himself, before God, holy and blameless beyond reproach. If, if, 
Indeed, you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you heard in me. Now I hear people saying right now, aha, that's what I thought. What he's saying is that you lose your salvation if you don't continue in the faith. The only thing wrong with that is my opinion is wrong. What he's saying is this, that he saved you to present you faultless if you continue in that faith. And if it is saving faith, you will continue in that faith. Now I dare you to do this. I dare you to find anywhere in the scripture this is challenged in the New Testament. Anywhere this is challenged. If there is the initial experience of saving faith, there will always be the additional fruit. And if a person does not continue in faith, it means he didn't have any to begin with. You say, well, does a person, if he gets saved and he doesn't follow through on his faith, does that mean he loses his salvation? In my humble and accurate opinion, it doesn't mean he loses his salvation. It means he never had any to begin with. For salvation is more than a 30-second experience. It is a life-changing event, and that initial experience bears additional fruit. And that's the test. What are you doing right now? Are you believing in Jesus? That means that somewhere, sometime, you got that faith, whether it was just a while ago or 10 years ago. Someone saying? Now, I want to put an addendum to this sermon with this illustration. Suppose you have in your medicine cabinet a bottle of medicine. It's medicine A. And you take medicine A to cure disease A. So you take medicine A and it cures disease A. You also have in your medicine cabinet medicine B. And medicine B is to cure disease B. You understand what I'm saying? Now let's suppose that one day you get sick and you think you've got disease A. Well, there's a medicine up there in your medicine cabinet. It's medicine A. It's supposed to cure disease A, and you think you got disease A. So how are you going to know whether you got disease A or not? How, how do you do that? Well, you go in there and you take medicine A. <laughs> and if medicine A cures it, then you can assume you had, medicine, you had disease A, right? But what if you think you got disease A, and you take, you take medicine A, and you're not cured? then you have a right to assume that you don't have disease A, right? Now watch. If you have doubts about your salvation, I want you to, I want you to do this right now. If you have doubts whether God has really saved you, you've been doubting, you ask Him to save you right now. You just tell Him, Lord, if I've not been saved, I want to be saved right now. I want you to come into my life I want eternal life. I want your gift of eternal life. I want you to take me to heaven. And if you pray that prayer and those doubts go away, then you know that was your problem. But if you have doubts about your salvation and you pray that prayer and you still have doubts, you've got another problem. See what I'm saying? So right now, you just ask Christ to come into your life if you've never been saved and 
and you just give your heart and life to Him and, and if assurance doesn't flood your heart, you still have the same doubts, you still have the same worries, then, then you're going to have to come at it from, from medicine B. You know what I'm saying? Now, there's more to being a follower of Christ than profession. Being a follower of Christ means that I abandon my life to Christ and I decide that I am a lifetime follower of Jesus. I'm going to ask you all over this place this morning, those of you who have never been saved, I want you, I'm going to ask you after we pray in a minute to abandon your life to Christ and become a lifetime follower of Jesus Christ. There is the initial experience. That's not what saves you. What saves you is placing your faith in God. He saves you. I'm going to ask you in a moment, those of us who are Christians that need to join the church. We had a young lady came this morning in early service to, for baptism. Now, if you're not doing what God wants you to do, you got, you, you know, you're going to be troubled about it. You are. Him, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. So if God's will, and you're not doing God's will, it may be of church membership or whatever, and you're not doing it, you're going to have some problems from now on. I want to ask you to come and join the church if God's speaking to you to do that. And there may be some of us this morning who are saved and we know we're saved. We know if we died right now we'd go straight to heaven. But there's so much in our life that, you know, we're ashamed of and we're not what we ought to be. And it troubles you. You can't cherish it. You hate it. Maybe you just need to publicly make those kinds of decisions. After we pray, I invite you to come. Would you join me? Father, I thank you that you make it possible for us to have eternal life and know it. And I pray you'll give that assurance to those who need that assurance. You'll give conviction to those who have none who need to be saved. And I thank you, Father, that, that you don't let us join the church and get all that stuff straightened out and be happy if we're not saved. So I pray, God, that you'll convict the lost, assure the saved, draw those who need to do your will today in a special way. For I ask in Christ's name for his sake. Now in the spirit of prayer, would you stand and join the choir singing, I Surrender All? Would you just step out and come, give your life to Christ, join our church, rededicate yourself to him on the very first word you come.